So it's the Kyle Style Podcast once again, and as promised at the end of the last episode, I wanted to bring you a little tribute to Black History Month. There's, uh, you know, there's all these like politics and everything around Black History Month and all this certain nonsense, and then there's these... uh, often told stories, right? There's all these, you know, well, MLK and, you know, George Washington Carver and all these, you know, these, I feel like they're kind of tired stories because you, you hear them every February. <laughs> uh, you hear them every February and, you know, they're not changing and they're, they're not exactly adding new ones, if that makes sense. So I wanted to drag up one that I've found and I've read and I, I know it probably has had to have had some influence here and there. But it doesn't have the kind of uh, popularity that I'd think it would. And it's another, uh, it's a story that comes out of a little known aspect of the American West and the American frontier. After the Civil War, uh, it seemed like everybody was heading out West, right? And that's where you get the classic American cowboy, right? But uh, that history has been a bit whitewashed. And there were uh, large numbers of cowboys were uh, Mexican, they were black, some were even women. And there's one particular story that uh, I want to recount a little bit for you. And it's a it's a fun story. It's it's uh, it's sort of it's almost folkloric. It's a mythic, uh, and it's a classic tale that I think includes a little a little uh, American exaggeration in it, a little bit of a tall tale, but it's a great story in both symbolism and it's an autobiography. So, so I bring you some select passages and uh, reflections on the life and adventures of Nate Love, better known in the cattle country as Deadwood Dick by himself. A True History of Slavery Days, Life on the Great Cattle Ranges, and on the Plains of the Wild and Woolly West, based on facts and personal experiences of the author. I mean, that's I, that's like actually the whole title. That's the whole title. <laughs> uh, and we'll, we'll revisit some of this stuff, uh, you know, Deadwood Dick and all that. But keep in mind, this is the autobiography of Nate Love, a... Uh, 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 Allegedly, at least according to him, a well-known black cowboy from the American Wild West. Having passed the half-century mark in life's journey, and yielding to persistent requests of many old and valued friends of the past and present, I have decided to write the record of slave, cowboy, and Pullman Porter will prove of interest to the reading public generally, and particularly to those who prefer facts to fiction— and in this case, again, facts will prove stranger than fiction. I assure my readers that every event chronicled in this history is based on facts and my personal experiences of more than 50 years of an, of an unusually adventurous life. Chapter 1 In an old log cabin on my master's plantation in Davidson County in Tennessee in June 1854, I first saw the light of day. The exact date of my birth I never knew, because in those days no count was kept of such trivial matters as the birth of a slave baby. They were born and died, and the account was balanced in the gains and losses of the master's chattels, and one more or less did not matter much one way or another. My father and mother were owned by Robert Love, 
an extensive planter and the owner of many slaves. He was in his way, and in comparison with many other slave owners of those days, a kind and indulgent master. My father was a sort of foreman of the slaves on the plantation, and my mother presided over the kitchen at the big house and my master's table, and among her other duties were to milk the cows and run the loom, weaving clothes for the other slaves. This left her scant time to look after me, so I early acquired the habit of looking out for myself. The other members of father's family were my sister Sally, about eight years old, and my brother Jordan, about five. My sister Sally was supposed to look after me when my mother was otherwise occupied, but between my sister's duties of helping mother and chasing the flies from master's table, I received very little looking after from any of the family. Therefore, necessity compelled me at an early age to look after myself and rustle my own grub. My earliest recollections are of pushing a chair in front of me and toddling from one to the other of my master's family to get a mouthful to eat like a pet dog, and later on as I became older, making raids on the garden to satisfy my hunger, much to the damage of the young onions, watermelons, turnips, sweet potatoes, and other things I could find to eat. We had to use much caution during these raids on the garden because we all knew that what we would catch if someone caught us, but much practice made us experts in escaping undetected. One day when Master and the family went to town, Mother decided to make some wine of which she was very fond. Accordingly, she gathered some grapes, and after pressing them, she made some fairly good wine. This she placed in a demijohn, a kind of... Uh, a stout jug, like a, you know, one of those uh, XXX kind of a moonshine jug. Okay. And this, for better security, she hid in the garden, as she thought unknown to anyone but my brother, sister, and myself had been watching the process with considerable curiosity, which finally reached such a pitch that there was nothing to it. We must sample a liquid that looked so good. So Jordan went to that hayloft from where a good view could be obtained all around, while myself and Sally busied ourselves in the vineyard. Presently, Mother, thinking all secure, left the house with the demijohn and proceeded to hide it. Jordan, from the hayloft, noted that Mother had never left the garden until she returned to the house empty-handed, but he was unable to see the exact hiding place. It was several days later, while passing through the garden, that we ran across the lost demijohn. It did not take us long to discover that its contents suited our tastes. Sally and Jordan dragged it into a sweet corn patch where we were safe from observation. An oyster can was secured to serve as a glass, and the way we attacked that wine was a caution to the temperance workers. And can I assure you, we enjoyed ourselves for a while, but for how long I am unable to tell exactly. Mother soon missed us, but being very busy, she could not look for us until evening. When she started out to look us up, after searching and calling in vain, she decided to take the dogs to help find us. With their aid, we were soon located, lying in the sweet corn, dead drunk. While with the demijohn quite empty, bottom side up, stared at Mother with a reproachful stare, and the oyster can which has served up and took me to the house, and let Sally and Jordan lie in nearby, bearing mute witness against us. Mother picked me up and took me to the house and let Sally and Jordan lie in sweet corn all night to dwell on the events 
Immediately preceding our return to consciousness is a painful subject to me, as it was exceedingly painful then. I was most feverish the next day with a head on my shoulders several sizes larger than the one I was used to wearing. Sally and Jordan were enjoying about the same health as myself, but the state of our health did not exempt us from mother's wrath. We all received a good, sound, old-fashioned thrashing, a fitting prelude to my first drunk. He goes on to describe, you know, various uh, boyhood hijinks and little uh, boyhood adventures, uh, incidents with uh, other kids that live nearby. I want to say neighborhood, but, you know, a rural place. uh, You know, kids are scattered around here and there, but they had, you know, rock fights and uh, hunting rabbits, that kind of thing. But uh, eventually came the day of emancipation. And... Uh, they were suddenly kind of turned loose on the world. Uh, you know, there there was no... And they actually stuck with their master, actually, for a while, because it, the master was like, well, okay, I'll start paying you guys to, you know, to do something, because where else were they going to go? Where Who, who was going to hire them to, like, you know, do things, right? So they kind of stuck around where they were, not knowing what to do, in some sense, with their with their newly found freedom. And... In fairly short order, they had, you know, uh, his father and his mother had kind of accumulated a little money, and they moved away to a house nearby. And uh, unfortunately, uh, his his father didn't live long after uh, the emancipation, and he began kind of working for himself. And so it fell on uh, Nate Love to be the breadwinner for himself and his siblings. Now, this led to uh, working, you know, working kind of like odd jobs and doing kind of like manual labor and stuff. But the the next little passage that I that I found that is is a it's a funny part of the story, right? Is his experience uh, earning extra money by uh, breaking horses, and this proves to be uh, very uh, sort of pivotal in terms of the long term, uh, the the lifelong. Yeah, skills and the the experience that he has as he, you know, becomes a cowboy. The next Sunday, I started to break horses. We did not dare to put the bridle on them as we were afraid the boss might surprise us and we would not be quick enough to get it off. Our mode of procedure was to drive one at a time in the barn, get it in a stall, then after much difficulty, I would manage to get on its back. Then the door was opened and the pole removed and the horse liberated with me on its back. Then the fun would commence. The colt would run, jump, kick, and pitch around the barnyard in its effort to throw me off. But he might as well try to jump out of his skin, because I held on to his mane and stuck to him like a leech. The colt would usually keep up his bucking until he could buck no more, and then I would get my ten cents. Ten cents is a small amount of money these days, but in those days that amount was worth more to me than ten dollars now. Well, we went on Sunday after Sunday, and I broke about a dozen colts in this way, and also managed to do it without the boss discovering the favor I was undoubtedly doing him in breaking all of his wild horses. Only his boys were aware of the doings, and they paid me, so I had no scruples about what I was doing, especially as it afforded me great fun. Finally, the boys wanted me to break a big, handsome black horse called Black Highwayman. Knowing the horse's uncertain temper and wild disposition, and taking into consideration its size, I refused to break him for ten cents, as the fact I was rather scared of him. 
After considerable bargaining in which I held out for 50 cents, we finally compromised on 25 cents. But I can assure you it was more for the money than the fun of the thing that I finally consented to ride him. With great difficulty, we managed to get him in a stall as we did the others, but I no sooner landed on his back than he jumped in the manger and with me hanging to his mane. Finally, the door was opened and the pole removed, and out of the barn we shot like a black cloud. Around the yard we flew, then over the garden fence. At this juncture, the track hounds became interested and promptly followed us. Over the fields we went, the horse clearing the highest fences and other obstacles in his way with the greatest ease. My seat on his back was not the most comfortable place in the world, but as the horse did not evince any disposition to stop and let me get off, I concluded to remain where I was. All the dogs of the neighborhood were fast joining in the race, and I had quite a respectable following. After running about two miles, we cleared a fence into a pasture where there was a large number of other horses and young colts who promptly stampeded as we joined them. High women taking the lead with me on his back, looking very much like a toad and all the dogs in the country strung out in the rear. Naturally, we formed a spectacle that could not fail to attract the attention of the neighbors, who, as soon as possible, mounted horses and started in pursuit, and vainly tried to catch my black mount, but could get nowhere near him. While I, without bridle or anything to control him, could do nothing but let him run as all the other horses bunched around us and the dogs kept up a continual din. I simply held on and let him go. It was a question of breaking the horse or breaking my neck. We went over everything, through everything, until finally the killing pace told and Black Highwayman fell. And it's here where uh, a young Nate Love experienced another uh, sort of moment of tragedy. His, uh, the money that the, the boys had paid him to break the horses... Uh, he had stuck it in the sort of folded corner of his shirt, and in the course of the ride, the money had fallen out, and they uh, they didn't want to pay him again. So, despite his adventure with black high women, he ended up emerging unpaid from that specific adventure. Right now, here's where the story takes this kind of. Uh, it, it kind of takes this turn at at chance, right? As you know, he he was the breadwinner for his family, and you know this little money, the extra money he was getting from breaking these horses and everything, was helping to sustain them. And he he enters a raffle, and this is this is like an interesting kind of odd story. I think that he knowingly or unknowingly uh, was part of a a, a scam. <laughs> So he entered a raffle to win a horse, okay? Uh, and the owner of the horse running the raffle, uh, Nate Love won the raffle. So he was approached by the owner of the horse. The owner of the horse offered to pay him for the horse. So he, you know, took money back from the owner, sold the horse back to him, and then they did another raffle for the same horse, okay? And then, and then this time, uh, you know, he, he won the horse again, right? And then the owner agreed to, you know, buy the horse back again. So the, <laughs> the owner of the horse, like I said, either knowingly or unknowingly, I think the guy was engaged in a scam, right? It was a con. He would, he would raffle the horse, get taken a bunch of money, take a portion of that money, buy the horse back from whoever had won it, and then repeat the process. And uh, it, it, uh, it just seems that way, right? 
But uh, he uses that money, and you know he he talks with his mother, and his his mother um, somewhat reluctantly but uh, knowingly kind of tells him that he needs to leave. He needs to he needs to take his money that he has and you know uh, and leave the the area, leave the region, you know, go out west and make something of himself. And I can imagine both logistically in the household him leaving would be an issue, but also uh you know as as a mother being worried about him, you know, presumably, but also wanting him to take advantage of their newfound freedom, right? So she she tells him, you know, yeah, you can, you should go, you should go out west. So he goes out west, and he, you know, makes, uh, he hooks up with some uh, some cattle boys, so to speak, some other cowboys, and they he he learns the ropes and the spurs and the saddles and the range, and begins a career as a cowboy, and working for himself using, you know, again those sort of skills that he picked up, and believing in uh, a believing in the adventure basically he goes on to have you know various uh, adventures and everything and the the romance of the of the wild west and all that is is wrought with dangers and they went through he, he has a, a brilliant kind of understatement about a specific incident they had with a stampede of a large herd of cattle in the middle of the night, in a raging storm. Shortly after I entered the employ of the Pete Gallinger Company, and after the roundups of the early season, we received an order for 2,500 head of three-year-old steers to be delivered at Dodge City, Kansas. This was the largest herd I had up to the present time followed good rest at the home ranch. We strung the large herd out with two months' provisions and the camp wagon. After a and one hundred extra saddle horses and several pack horses on the trail, our outfit consisted of forty picked cowboys along the old Chiller's Trail and wrote for Kansas, and we started on what proved to be an eventful journey. The herd behaved splendidly and gave us very little trouble until we crossed the Red River and struck the Old Dog and Sun City Trail. Here they became restless and stampeded nearly every night and whenever they got half a chance. This made it very hard on us cowboys, as it is no easy matter to ride the lines of such a large herd, let alone having to chase them back in line from many miles over the prairie where they had stampeded in their wild career. After crossing the Kansas line at a place known as the South Forks, while making for the head of the Cimarron River on the 27th of June, we experienced one of the hardest rain and hailstorms I had ever seen in the western country. The rain came down in torrents only to cease and give place to hailstones the size of walnuts, while the thunder and lightning was incessant. It was shortly after dark when the storm commenced. The 2,500 head of cattle strung out along the trail became panic-stricken and stampeded, and despite our utmost efforts, we were unable to keep them in line. Imagine, my dear reader, riding your horse at the top of his speed through torrents of rain and hail and darkness so black that we could not see our horses' heads, chasing an immense herd of maddened cattle which we could we could hear but not see, except during the vivid flashes of lightning which furnished our only light. It was the worst night's ride I ever experienced, 
Late the next morning, we had the herd rounded up 30 miles from where they started from the night before. On going back over the country to our camp of the night before, we saw the great danger we had been in during our mad ride. There were holes, cliffs, gullies, and big rocks scattered all around, some of the cliffs going down a sheer 50 feet or more, where if we had fallen over, we would have been dashed to pieces on the rocks below. But we never thought of our personal danger that night, and we did not think particularly of it when we saw it further than to make a few joking remarks about what would have happened if some of us had gone over. One of the boys offered to bet that a horse and rider going over (laughs) one of those cliffs would bring up in China, while others thought he would bring up in Utah. It was our duty to save the cattle, and everything else was of secondary importance. We never lost a single steer during this wild night, something we were justly proud of. So both in the 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 tone that it's written in and the kind of uh the uh, the commentary from the other cowboys, you kind of get this humor uh out of the 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 the, the tone and the humor of these guys who live out in the wilderness and force cattle to walk the right direction, right, in big groups, and they they are they're they're silly, right? They seem like kind of like a it's kind of a classic thing. There's kind of a bond between them, right? And he even describes how there were you know he used the word colored, but there there was other colored cowboys or other black cowboys, um, and. He describes that there is there was less. Uh, he didn't just experience the same discrimination um, that that he had experienced you know, in the South and everything, because you were there and you were doing work, and so it kind of lends itself to a kind of uh, functional meritocracy, right? Uh, who are these? Who are the crazy people who are gonna? herd these giant herds of cattle or horses around out in the middle of god knows where in storms there's uh there are packs of indians that are going to try to kill you there are cattle rustlers there are bandits who might try to kill you that you can get sick you can get hurt who are the crazy people who are going to do this well anybody who signs up and is willing to do this uh they are your they're your bread and butter you know they they're your they're how you make money as a cattle rancher or a you know so they he he describes just having the value of his work and having his own reputation right and so it's a sort of true meritocracy in action in a sort of semi wilderness sort of setting and he he kind of builds upon this through the, through the various adventures and things that he has he gets a name for himself and uh he's given different tasks and everything and he arrives at, you know, this is another one of those parts where I said it was almost folkloric. It's kind of a, it's almost a, uh, it's a tall tale kind of a thing. Uh, he recounts the story of <laughs> riding his horse into the bar and ordering the horse a drink. After the buffalo hunt, we were sent down in old Mexico to get a herd of horses that our boss had bought from the Mexicans in the southwestern part of old Mexico. 
We made the journey out all right without special incident, but after we had got the horses out on the trail, headed north, I was possessed with the desire to show off, and I thought, surprised, the staid old greasers on whom we of the northern cattle country looked with contempt. So accordingly, I left the boys to continue with the herd while I made for the nearest saloon, which happened to be located in one of the low mud houses of that country, with a wide door and clay floor. As the door was standing open and looked so inviting, I did not want to go to the trouble of dismounting, so urging my horse forward, I rode in the saloon. First, however, scattering with a few random shots the respectable-sized crowd of dirty Mexicans hanging around as I was in no humor to pay for the drinks for such a motley gathering. Riding up to the bar, I ordered Keller for myself and a generous measure of pulky for my horse, both popular Mexican drinks. The fat, wobbling greaser who was behind the bar looked scared, but he proceeded to serve us with as much grace as he could command. My forty-five Colt, which I proceeded to reload, acting as a persuader. Hearing a commotion outside, I realized that I was surrounded. The crowd of Mexican bums had not appreciated my kindly greeting as I rode up, and it seems did not take kindly to being scattered by bullets and not realizing that I could have killed them all just as easy as I scattered them, and seeing there was but two of us, I and my horse, they had summoned sufficient courage to come back and seek revenge. There was a good-sized crowd of them, everyone with some kind of shooting iron, and I saw at once that they meant business. I hated to have to hurt some of them, but I could see I would have to or be taken myself, and perhaps strung up to ornament a telegraph pole. This pleasant experience I had no especial wish to try, so putting spurs to my horse I dashed out of the saloon, then knocking a man over with every bullet from my colts I cut for the open country, followed by several volleys from the angry Mexicans' pop guns. So as you can see, there's a, a, a somewhat grandiose and, uh, you know, probably exaggerated uh, aspect to some of his stories, right? And this is one of them where... Uh, you know, he, he actually shot people, you know, shot people going into, go into a, ride his horse into a bar and get the horse a drink, right? It's, uh, it seems a bit excessive, uh, but it's also comical and it's, 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 uh, it's, it's ridiculous. But at the same time, given the nature of, you know, even what we think of as the Wild West, it also seems believable, right? It seems like that could, someone probably did something like that from time to time. It maybe happened more than once, right? Uh, so he, he recounts that story, but then there's, uh, there's another one that it seems like it's, it's almost, it's too symbolic to the, the rest of the story to, uh, to necessarily think it's true. It's almost a, a John Henry kind of, uh, kind of story, uh, where he attempts to use his cowboy skills and, uh, attempts to, uh, rustle a, uh, a locomotive. <laughs> on one of these memorable trips after cattle, and with cattle on the trail, one that I will most likely remember the longest was a trip to old Mexico after a herd of horses. It was on this trip that I fell in love the first time in my life. During my wild career on the western plains, I had met many handsome women, and they often made much of me, but somehow I had never experienced the feeling called love until I met my charming sweetheart in old Mexico. I had perhaps been too much absorbed in the wild life of the plains, in the horses and cattle which made up my world, 
to have the time or inclination to seek or enjoy the company of the gentler sex. But now that I had met my fate, I suppose I became as silly about it as any tenderfoot from the East could possibly be, as evidence of how badly I was hit. While on the trail with the herd, our route lay along a narrow-gauge railroad, and I was feeling up in the air, caused no doubt partly from the effects of love and partly from the effects of Mexican whiskey, a generous measure I had under my belt. However, I was feeling fine, so when the little engine came puffing along in the distance, I said to the boys, I have roped nearly everything that could be roped, so now I am going to rope the engine. They tried to persuade me not to make the attempt, but I was in no mood to listen to reason or anything else. So when the engine came along, I put my spurs to my horse, and when near enough, I let fly my lariat. The rope settled gracefully around the smokestack, and as usual, my trained horse set himself back for the shock, but the engine set both myself and my horse in the ditch, and might have continued to set us in places had not something given way. As it was, the rope parted, but the boys said afterwards that they thought they would have to send for a wrecking train to clean the track, or rather, the ditch. Roping a live engine is by long odds worse than roping wild buffalo on the plains or Uncle Sam's cannon at the forts. This incident cleared the atmosphere somewhat, but my love was as strong as ever, and I thanked my lucky star she did not see me as they dragged me out of the ditch. I first saw my sweetheart as we were driving the herd along the dusty road, passing a small adobe house near the city of Old Mexico. I saw a handsome young Spanish girl standing in the yard, and I suppose I fell in love with her at first sight. Anyway, I pretended to be very thirsty and rode up and asked her for a drink. She gave it to me, and I exchanged a few words with her before joining the boys and the herds. So, roping a locomotive, uh, pretty obviously a bad idea. There's a little whiskey involved, right? Uh, and falling in love with a pretty Mexican girl, right? And so this is where his, uh, you know, his career as a cowboy kind of it wanes. You know, he he the, he accepts the closing of the West, which was kind of that, you know, end of the Pony Express, telegraph, the cross country railroads, uh, transcontinental railroads, and the uh, state borders and land changed hands, and these wild open trails that they would herd these cattle on closed down you couldn't you could no longer navigate along these these cattle trails so you know that that lifestyle came to an end and like i said it's uh, about the roping the locomotive story is is symbolic of course of the railroad and the closing of the west and here's where the story becomes a little more i don't know i want to say pedestrian he becomes a porter on a rail line right and on this rail on this railroad he traveled far and wide across america as if he hadn't already of course but he uh he traveled far and wide and he adopted a more sedentary lifestyle right he 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 gave up his youthful cowboyish adventuring and became a an employee right uh, but here's where, here's where, again, that kind of, uh, sort of concept of, I hate to just say meritocracy, but just this idea that he 
he lived his life, he traveled, he uh, put himself to the test, he earned respect for his uh, his uh, resilience and his strength and everything, and his skills. And he towards the end of, towards the end of the book itself, he actually uh, mentions this in a uh, uh, almost a, a dare I say it, it it would make a bald eagle shed a single tear of uh, pure American pride. And uh, I'll I'll leave it I'll leave it in his words the way he put it. It has always seemed strange to me that so many Americans rush off to Europe and foreign countries every year in search of health and pleasure, or to climb the Alps in Switzerland, and to view the scenery of the old world, when our own North America, the New World, offers so many better opportunities to study Dame Nature in all her faces. And I always say to the traveling American, See America! How many of you have done so? Only those who have seen this grand country of ours can justly appreciate the grandeur of our mountains and rivers, valley and plain, canyon and gorge, lakes and springs, cities and towns, the grand evidence of God's handiwork scattered all over this fair land over which waves the stars and stripes. Go to New York and view the tall buildings, the Brooklyn Bridge, the subway. Study the works of art to be found there, both in statuary and painting. Ponder on the vast volume of commerce carried on with the outside world. Note the many different styles of architecture displayed in the Palace of the Millionaire and the House of the Humble Tradesman. View the magnificent Hudson River and the country homes along its grassy, tree-lined shores. Note the ships from every clime riding at anchor in the East River. Then speculate on the changes that have been wrought in the course of the short time since Manhattan Island was purchased from the Indians by Pete Minutes for a few blankets and beads amounting in value to $24. Then board the Pennsylvania Limited, whose trains are the acme of modern railroading, and go to Washington, the nation's capital city. Walk along Pennsylvania Avenue and note its beauty. Visit the capital and let your chest swell out with pride that you are an American. Visit the tomb of General Grant and the thousand and one magnificent statues scattered throughout the city. Visit Annapolis and West Point, where the leaders of the nation's navy and army are trained. Walk over the battlefields of Fredericksburg, Gettysburg, and Lexington, and let your mind speculate on the events that made modern history. He continues. Cross the desert of Nevada, which was only a short time ago a desert waste, on and on until you smell the orange blossoms of sunny California, and the train emerges from the mountains and brings into view the grand Pacific Ocean. See the big trees of California, the seals and the scenery of the Yosemite Valley. Visit the orange groves and the vineyards and partake of the orange and the grape. Visit Catalina Island in the Pacific Ocean and try a couple of hours fishing in its waters. Then take the Southern Pacific and return to New York by way of Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, New Orleans, Florida, and other southern states. Then again, let your chest swell with pride that you are an American. I think you will agree with me that this grand country of ours is the peer of any in the world, and that volumes cannot begin to tell of the wonders of it. Then after taking such a trip, you will say with me, See America. I have seen a large part of America, and am still seeing it, but the life of a hundred years would be all too short to see our country, America. I love thee, sweet land of liberty, home of the brave and the free.
So the you know the the symbolism of the story again, like I said, it's it's a it's it's a great maybe it's just a great yarn, but it's a great story in that he you know he starts in bondage as a slave and in ignorance he uh, he works hard he cares about his family he tries to do the best thing for them you know there there's tragedy that befalls them but then he has certain you know he takes risks and he he takes charge of his own life he heads out into the wild west to seek his form and, uh, f- fortune and fame and the result is that he uh you know w- had these various adventures and he even he he ties in various events like uh custer's last stand he was you know uh just arrived in the area after uh custer's last stand uh at the little bighorn and and talks about having you know kind of had encounters with people like billy the kid and buffalo bill and kind of this folkloric uh whole menagerie of characters that you you know from popular you know culture and everything and then you know he he lives these adventures, and then at the end ends up working on working for the rail, and the rail is what ended that adventurous lifestyle. But he still is proud of being an American. He's proud to be free. He's proud to uh, have lived his life the way that he you know lived it. And here, after I've you know told you the fun the fun part of the story and and give you some snippets there, I have to say there is a wee bit of a problem and it's that like i said it's a bit exaggerated uh it might be a bit of a tall tale well i can't seem to find any information about whether or not this story is in any sense true uh you know i'm willing to forgive certain things like maybe the exact year he was born because if he was you know a black man and he's born in the south at that time he probably would have been a slave so there probably wouldn't be documentation like he says uh what time he went out west well there wouldn't have been employment records there was no social security card at that time there was no state ids right so there's no way to confirm if he actually was there now an important thing i did find is that uh his the the nickname of deadwood dick came from his uh, ability as a marksman he was a good shot with his pistols right and his rifle as he said uh but deadwood dick apparently was a kind of a dime novel character uh, at the time. So you would have these cheap dime novels, uh, which I would compare to like the uh, grocery store trashy romance novels we have today. You'd know it's going to be trash, but hey, if you hey, if you got a couple bucks, you drop it on this book and it's going to be legible and there will be some naughty stuff in it and it might keep you entertained. So the same way these dime novels were oftentimes these uh, exaggerated stories of the Old West, they were not researched at all, uh, but they contributed to the popular culture. And so that's where the, a lot of the imagery of the Wild West comes from was the popularization uh, in other places in the cities and everything of what was going on in the wild west and that's where you get these romantic figures the uh, billy the kids and jesse james and all these uh so him adopting the moniker of saying he's the real deadwood dick to me it's all it might almost be kind of like saying you're the real james bond you know because you were in special forces so you're the real james bond that it's actually based on uh 
it's 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 tough because again like i said i kind of i looked around and at least on the internet and i couldn't find anything that would confirm this now i I found that there was commentary that said that he seemed to have knowledge about uh you know cattle uh ranching and uh herding and everything that seems to indicate that he did actually know about these things but to uh, you know, to really say that he roped a locomotive and he, uh, you know, he knew Billy the Kid or whatever, it's it seems like a stretch. And it seems like maybe what you might have had was a guy who he did work as a cowboy. He saw the cowboy life ending. He got a job working on the railroad and still enjoyed his job. He enjoyed his work and saw America, saw much more than he ever would have thought he would when he was a young child living under slavery. And maybe he was a fan of these novels, you know, and then he kind of wanted to romanticize it and put himself in it because he knew that he was maybe part of that era and that he wanted to, you know, try to maybe cement himself into the narrative a little bit. I don't know. I don't, and I don't, I don't know if you can know because again, you know, there's no records, documentation or anything, but it seems like there's just, there's too many events that all happened in sometimes very distant places like overland New Mexico, which is where Billy the Kid was operating, is a very long way from Montana where you know, uh, Custer's last stand was. So I'd have to, you know, look at the time frames and everything and see if it really lines up. But the point is that the story is good. It's kind of like a really good joke. It doesn't have to be true. It just has to be interesting and intriguing. And this is a fairly short read. And, And again, like I'm surprised, I think maybe partially there's some of this, uh, there's a little insensitive language for uh, the modern day kind of PC police. He calls them Mexican greasers and calls them dirty Mexican bums and all that. And that's inappropriate in a, in a sense. So you can't really have this in a classroom. But uh, if it's in any way true, and I believe the aspects of the slavery and his early poverty, years of poverty and what the, what traveling to the West afforded him, you are having in some sense the first person account of a black man in America, uh, seeking his, seeking a way, you know, finding, finding a way rather than just, uh, you know, being a sharecropper or otherwise just kind of call it, I don't want to say languishing, but kind of languishing in this, in the South where it was all this paranoia and this embedded racism and everything that is still there today he went out west you know he he found a nice uh, pretty mexican girl he had his adventures he became you know he became like a man and he became skilled and, and capable and saw the country for what it is and what it can be and in that sense it's a it's just a really great story so i was happy to bring it to you uh here on the kyle style podcast and uh this is uh again this is like the the black history episode of the kyle style podcast and we're moving on into march soon and i've got some things uh, kind of circling the drain here about what it would maybe different overall direction even that i might go with this whole podcast thing Again, soundcloud's in a little trouble might have to switch platforms try not to like think about it until i have to but uh Thanks for checking in with this episode. Uh, hopefully have some new, fresh, hot content off the grill for you uh, here in the next week or so. And 
thanks for tuning in again. Check out uh, check out the blog. Check out the, uh, the GoFundMe. Hit me up on Twitter, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks. Bye.